Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, listener, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. Join us now over at patreon.com forward slash jumpers podcast. Today, we time travel to May 2005. This year saw the start of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy with Batman Begins. And on the pitch, his mate Robin signed for Chelsea. We take a look at the final weekend of the 04-05 season. Mush the matchman is live from the Hawthorns to see if West Brom can do the impossible and survive the drop. Dan takes a close look at the time somebody let Stuart Pearce manage a Premier League side. And Brucey's bath is going to be savage. So, what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Beautiful day here at the Valley. Charlton supporters basking in the sun. Ian Dowie from the Goonies. He looks hot under his Crystal Palace free polo t-shirt. His side need to score here if they are to have any chance of staying in the league. Paul Kinchesky passes it back to Dean Kiley. One slap head to another. Kiley's kick is high in the sky. Back into the Charlton half. Jonathan Fortuny tries to cushion it back. Oh, but he sold Kylie short. Dougie Freeman latches onto it. One touch. Loopy strike. Goal for Palace. Freeman only on the pitch, replacing Danny Spreadable. Butterfield has scored and given Dowie and the Goonies. I mean, Palace hope. Charlton won. Palace won. These next two men love a game of championship manager and both have some impressive stats from the game. So much so that Dan has used a Chapman CV to apply for a few football jobs. Mush the Matchman just had an unbelievable season with West Ham United. After just two years in charge and canny free transfer signings of George Way and Mark Hughes, he won the league with West Ham and reached the FA Cup final, winning it with a last-minute bullet header from Thomas Repka. The Matchman, dressed to the nines in an FA Cup final suit, armed with a bottle of champers, tried to book an open-top bus to celebrate his achievements. But the best he could muster was hanging out of his car window with an inflatable FA Cup trophy. It's Daniel McIntyre and Connor Elliott, also known as Dan and Mush the Matchman. Dan, how are we doing today? Very good, Stephen. Thank you. Matchman, how are you today? I'm very good, Steve. Thank you for that uh, beautiful (laughs) opener there. Well, you are a Chapman fan, are you not? I am. I'm still got to this day that I didn't get the open-top bus that I wanted. <laughs> Have you still got that inflatable FA Cup trophy? Oh, yes, but it'll lead, it'll lead pumped up. Surely Dan may lend me one of his uh, football pumps that he has. No, won't. He's got a few pumps. Right, lads, so today we're taking a look at the last weekend of the 0405 season. Dan, what are your memories from this wonderful time of 2005? Oh, Stephen, life was good. I had the best job going locally, working in the local arcade, gaming machines, music channels, keys to the pool tables. It was a mighty time to be alive. I was playing loads of football, two games a week, on a, two on a Saturday, 
one for the youth team, one for one of the, the senior teams. Oh, it was a fantastic time to be alive. Sure was. I can remember you actually eating your cornflakes off the pool tables in the arcade. <laughs> Probably true. And you woke up on the pool table a few times as well, isn't that right? <laughs> That's also definitely true. Okay, lads, I can see you've both got some tasty jerseys on this week to celebrate the 0405 season. Dan, is that long sleeve or have you just got a bit of blue paint on your arm? Neither, Steve. It's a uh, blue under armour. Just uh, this this kit needs an extra bit of protection. This week I'm wearing the Manchester City home shirt from the 2004-2005 season. The kit design is sky blue with a white round collar with two navy and white stripes on the shoulder. A new badge design with gold colouring and three stars above. Must be for some pre-season wingnut trophy City won. The kit design is Reebok. A very retro kit design, I must say. Admire that. And kit sponsor is Thomas Cook. For all the holidays Manchester City players took this season. They were managed by Stuart Pearce. Bloody hell. And this top was worn by Manchester City legends Sylvain Distan, Robbie Fowler, Kiki Musampa, Party Song's uncle, Sonji Hai, Slapheads Danny Mills and Anton Sibierski, Richard Dunn, Hooligan Joey Barton, Little Sean Wright Phillips, Trevor Sinclair and Stephen Granny's Ireland. Mosh, you look like you've got a fine jersey on. Is that an away number you've got on this week? It is, Stephen. The kit I'm wearing is the Birmingham City away kit from the 2004-2005 season under the management of former Birmingham City player Steve Bruce. When they weren't playing at St Andrews, Brucey liked to personally lay out this kit in the changing rooms. The kit was a rich red warming colour, the type of dressing gown Brucey likes to wear and relax with after his bath. This had a collar, yes, a fine dark navy coloured collar with a red patch just randomly thrown in there, which Trinidad Roman Yorkie used to love puffing up. A thin navy trim design throughout the kit, especially on the sleeves. The kit was made by Deodora, sponsored by Flybee. Some of the players blessed to wear this kit were Jamie Clap Your Hands Clapham, Republic of Ireland warrior Kenny Cunningham, Arsenal legend Matthew Upson, Is It Muzzy Muzzy Is It, Jesper Carrot Gronkier, Robbie Pierce Savage, David Tripp Over the Ball Done, Unsung Heroes, Mario Melshot, Damien Johnson, Julian Touch of Grey, and Stan Gadame Lateridis. And the firepower up top, well, Big Heskey, Clint the Sprint Morrison, Walter Pandiani, and Trinidad tag team of Stern John and Dwight York. Also, sick note, Doran Cheese Strings for Hamstrings Anderton wore this kit on the physio's table. The kit I'm wearing is the Birmingham City away from 2004-2005. The summer of 04 going into the 04-05 season was another mad summer. The lads have looked back now at the top bits of transfer business of the summer of 04-05 and some of the worst bits of business. My best bits of business for the 2004-2005 season are as follows, and I have to say, some wonderful bits of business from all 20 clubs in the Premier League. Uh, in at five, it's Gary Speed, who moved from Newcastle United to Bolton Wanderers for £1 million. What a bargain. Gary Speed was still in his pump, had plenty left to give, We're going and represent Bolton for up to almost four seasons. I feel Newcastle made a mistake selling him too early. And he was a brilliant player for Sam Allardyce and a true Premier League legend. In at four, it's Michael Curick, 
who moved from West Ham United to Tottenham Hotspurs for £3.6 million. Michael was already a full England international, was admired by many top clubs, was already linked with Arsenal and Manchester United during this window as well. I think both of them should have took a punt on him early doors, but it was Tottenham that snapped him up for the bargain price. And he, he proved to be a great signing. In at number three, and it's the wonderful playmaker, Xabi Alonso, who moved from Real Sociedad to Liverpool for £10.7 million. Rafa Benitez has just taken charge of Liverpool and he spent the club's money wisely. Xabi Alonso was a world-class midfielder. I had the privilege of seeing him live a few years ago for Bayern Munich and he was absolutely outstanding. And he really linked up very well with Suzuko, Mascherano and Gerard over the course of his Liverpool career. In at number two, remember the name. It's young gun and England star Wayne Rooney, who moved from Everton to Manchester United for 25 million plus add-ons, depending on the success. And that money would be added on because of that success. Rooney was a magnificent player, wanted by all the big clubs in Europe, but it was Sir Alex Ferguson who tempted him to Old Trafford. And what a relationship he would have at the Theatre of Dreams and indeed with Sir Alex. Most we all know and remember how brilliant Wayne Rooney was, but what he got up to at night. Did you enjoy that part of his life? Well, if the stories are to be true, I don't think I would have liked to see that now if he, if he liked the company of an older lady. Whether or not he'd done it, still, still no truth on the matter. I just remember him for his on the field antics. And I was talking about him uh, going to the casino at night. I've no idea what you're talking about. Dan, what's your next one? And then at number one, and it's Didier Drogba, who moved from Marseille to Chelsea for £24 million. He was Jose Mourinho's big summer signing. I've went for instant impact over longevity in my top two um, this week. And I've went for Drogba over Rooney just because he delivered two titles straight away for Chelsea and their first in 50 years. He was a fantastic signing by Mourinho and he was top of his hit list. But Mourinho turning down moves for the likes of Ronaldinho, wanting a big target man instead. Drogba had a great career at Chelsea, and he is my number one piece of business this week in a list of great business all around. Yeah, some top signings there, Dan. Matchman, Didier Drogba, obviously a top striker here. People may not remember, though, but he also liked a good swan dive. He did. Drogba was brilliant before I go off on one here, but for a big man, he went down very easily. Didn't appreciate that, but still probably one of the best strikers the Premier League's ever seen. Who makes your top five worst bits of business? Yes, in at number five is Yuri Yarosek, signed by Chelsea from CSK Moscow for just under £11 million. The Roman Empire was on full attack mode as they had signed no fewer than 10 players. But for every good Chelsea signing under the Russian gangster comes a not-so-good one. 14 appearances, zero goals for this tiring midfielder who was supposed to be a threat from set pieces. Well, Jose didn't see much in him and he was loaned out to Birmingham City the next season before getting a transfer to Celtic in 2006. He did start the 2005 Carling Cup final which Chelsea won an extra time against Liverpool. Number four, James Beattie. £8 million from Southampton to Everton. A good goal scorer at the Saints where he had banged in 68 Premiership goals. Everton needed someone to be their new big Duncan. Well, BD did do that, but not with his goal scoring exploits. On his fifth appearance, he headbutted William Gallus, leading to a three-match ban. 
Beattie found it difficult to settle at Goodison and hampered by injuries, he only netted 15 times in 86 appearances. Moyes had enough and Beattie was transferred to Sheffield United. Number three, it's Van Damme from Ajax to Southampton for 2.5 million. The Saints must have thought they had a young prospect from the great Ajax Academy. Well, Van Damme was not that. Only six appearances in one season, value for money, I think not. He made little impact and must have brought bad luck with him as Southampton had an awful season. I remember seeing the headline on CFAX, Van Damme signs for Saints. I was like, surely the king of blood sport and kickboxer isn't going to be playing at St. Murray's. Well, I think Van Damme and Street Fighter may have played better than this Ajax dud. He was loaned out the next season and then sold the following one. Number two, Gibriel Cisse for £18 million from Auxerre to Liverpool. Michael Owen had left to go to Real Madrid for £10 million plus Nunes, so Liverpool spent a lot of coin on getting a new number nine. He was the third most expensive transfer behind Drogba and Rooney, who would leave legacies at the clubs they had signed for. As for Cissé, not so much. Five goals and 25 appearances in his first season, which he missed a fair amount after a freak accident where his studs got caught in the turf at Ewood Park. Poor Gibraltar broke his leg and was told he'd be out for 12 to 18 months. But uh -uh! he returned for an end-of-season push and won a Champions League. Benitez still didn't fancy him, though, and played him as a winger. And he didn't live up to the price tag and replaced Michael, stating the obvious Owen. But while at Liverpool, he did get married in a red tuxedo and purchased a manor house in Cheshire and was given the title Lord of the Manor. Dan, looking back now, replacing Michael Owen with Gibral CC. What are they at? I am not sure what they're at. There are various stories about how Owen left and Rafa won him. They don't want to go to Madrid. Either way, he moves on. They get the car salesman Antonio Nunes in return on top of a few euro. And uh, while Rafa done some very good business in bringing in Alonso, he had real trouble with strikers early on in his Liverpool career. There was a lot of comings and goings until he finally found his man in Torres. So Cissé was a punt that just didn't work out. Yes, he was held back with his broken leg, but as the matchman just touched on there, he was off and played out on the wing and just didn't get enough goals. And my number one worst bit of business is Jean-Alain Boomsong. £10 million from Rangers to Newcastle United. Rangers had signed Boonsong on a free only five months previous. What a bit of business for the jurors, as Boonsong had only made 18 league appearances. Could his stock went up by that much? This transfer raised eyebrows by not just supporters and media, but it was brought under the Lord Stevens inquiry into football corruption. After a year of investigation, this transfer, it was cleared as legit, but there was 17 transfers that were found to be dodgy. Big Sam and Harry involved. He then joined Juventus in Serie B, who were relegated from Serie A due to more corruption. And that concludes my worst bit of business for the 2004-2005 season. Lovely stuff, lads. Some great business there on both ends of the spectrum. I've got a bizarre bit of business for you. I'd both like you to pitch in on this one. It's a transfer out. It's one that I remember at the time us all scratching our heads. And it's Thomas Gravison to Real Madrid for £3.06 million. They've finally found their man to replace Claude Makélélé in big... Thomas the Dean. Dan, what did you make of this one? I thought it was one of the maddest pieces of business I've ever seen in my life. 
certainly summed up the great career of Thomas Gravison, who I uh, very much hope we talk about down the line more. But what makes it really bizarre is that Everton had two strong, bald men in the middle of the park at the time with Gravison and Lee Kiersley. And to this day, Corsley tongue-in-cheek says he reckons Madrid were in fact scouting him. And there was a mix-up. <laughs> a scout signs, recommends Gravison instead. You know, Gravison was not a holding man. He was an all-over-the-place, box-to-box engine of a midfielder where Corsley was actually the one uh, in front of the back four for Everton at the time. So who knows, but a mad piece of business. And to see... Gravison, not that he was a bad player, but to see him in there with the Galacticos was was brilliant. But he would get his wish then, Dan, and end up back at Everton for the 07-08 season, just where he belonged and probably should have been all along. Uh, I think so. He actually had a bit of scouse in his accent as well. I think he loved the area. And if it hadn't have been Real Madrid, he probably wouldn't have left at all. And uh, he was he was happy to go back and have a bit of a swan song with the Toffees. Pretty quiet first half here at St. James's Park. No end of season treats from Jose. Former Blues' Babiaro with a bold cross into the box. Well, I think it was a cross. It's been met by Hoof's large head, hoofing it out of play. Charles Zogbia, a man who can't get no sleep with the corner, curls it in. Oh, but it's been met by Titus Bramble to give the Magpies the lead. Oh, but replay show, it's come off Jeremy. That's why Bramble isn't celebrating. Poor old Ron Jeremy hangs out his leg and the ball unkindly deflects off them. Chelsea's solid defence this season has been breached. It's Newcastle United 1, Chelsea 0. And now it's time to see how Manchester City and Borough got on on the final day. Dan, you had a look at this one. Thank you, Stephen. And yes, a cup final atmosphere at the City of Manchester Stadium with Borough visiting Man City with UEFA Cup football on the line. Manchester City would line up with traffic cone keeper David James and goals. Danny Mills, Sylvan Distan, Nadum Anua and Ben Thug Thatcher at the back. Kiku Musampa, Claudio Reyna, Joey Barton and Sean Wright Phillips midfield. And a front two of Anton Sivierski and Robbie Fowler. The Wally with the Brawley would bring a fine 11 for Middlesbrough with Mark Swartzer and goals. A centre-back pairing of Ugo Wagayog and Gar Southgate both stolen from Aston Villa. Stuart Barnaby right back and Frank Quadru left back. A midfield of Raimondo Parler, Doriva, George Botang and Bolo Zenden. And a front two of Zlizard Nemeth and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. This game would see a dramatic end to a match in which City dominated possession, but Middlesbrough having the best of chances created. The first real chance of the game came when Sean Wright Phillips burst through and lofted the ball over Mark Schwarzer, only to see it drift wide while Middlesbrough had two half chances from Bolo's ending and George Botang. Nevertheless, it was the visitors that broke the deadlock when Jimmy Pinkfroy Hasselbank smashed a free kick into the top corner, giving traffic cone keeper David Calamity James absolutely no chance. Man City quickly bounced back with Wright Phillips torturing Quadru out on the right and Fowler and Sibieski keeping the dynamic lethal weapon partnership of Southgate and Akiog busy. Stuart Pearce must have smashed a few teacups at halftime as Man City equalised 59 seconds into the second half through Reggie Blinker lookalike and wannabe Kiki Musamba. 
The crowd played their part for this game, keeping the players going right throughout. Given it was the last game of the season, fatigue was clearly setting in. Raimondo Parler was subbed before he got a second yellow, and the crowd went absolutely nuts when Stuart Psycho Pierce made the psychotic decision to sub Nicky Weaver on for midfield maestro Claudio Reyna in a move that would see David James move up front in a front three with Sibierski and Fowler. Striker John Macken absolutely fuming on the bench. This would lead to Middlesbrough's back four being put under loads of pressure in the last 10 minutes and City would win a penalty in stoppage time, giving them the chance to gain UEFA Cup qualification. But Robbie Godfowler was denied by kangaroo guy mate Mark Swartzer, who skipped over to the corner and caught the ball before it hit the net. Middlesbrough would hold on through stoppage time and three corners from Manchester City. The referee blew his whistle. Middlesbrough would go to the UEFA Cup and Man City under Stuart Pearce would continue to go absolutely nowhere. It's 1-1 at the City of Manchester Stadium. David James is up front. Nicky Weaver is in goals. Mark Schwarzer's bouncing around like a kangaroo. Steve McLaren has put his umbrella away. He's going on his holidays. And Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank is absolutely delighted. What the hell was Stuart Pearce drinking at halftime? Matchman, please give me some insight into the mind of Stuart Pearce here. What was he thinking? This is probably one of the worst tactical changes in Premier League history. He has a striker on the bench, yes. Not a great one. But he decides to put David Calamity Jeans up top and put Nicky Weaver in the bags. They'd talked about this during the week as well, too, in training. So this was the this was plan B or plan C, whatever you want to refer to it as. James talks about after it. He says that he just froze. He says he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know position <laughs> sense. You know, he felt even when a cross came in, he felt like catching it because he's so used to doing goals. Dan, what do you think Robbie Fowler was thinking when he seen David James running up towards him? <laughs> Robbie Fowler was probably thinking, get me out of here. I've got Sibierski to the right of me and David James to the left. Gone are the days of... <laughs> Paducah, Smith, Michael Owen, Riedler, he's stuck now with these two, two brand new strike partners. Guess the penalty in stoppage time, not the best penalty Robbie Fuller ever hit, it was a comfortable save by Schwarzer, but it was a really entertaining game. Just the last 10 minutes were absolutely frantic when James went up front, and uh, Mush is quite right, it was clearly planned, you know, they have the jersey and all ready for him. I Fowler's probably thinking, what is going on? And John Macken, is probably thinking, oh. what have I done here? You know, he is a Premier League striker, as most says, okay, not a world-class striker, but a striker nonetheless. He's been severely disrespected uh, by his manager here. He was actually, I was reading about that, um, he was absolutely fuming. What's, what do you think's worse, um, coming on as a sub and being subbed again, or seeing the keeper going up front when you're a striker on the bench? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well... There's only one man who can probably answer that question is John Macken. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre madness and uh, it was refreshing to cover this game in the midst of the relegation battle and, and, and Chelsea tying up the title so early. So this was a great find for us. In the midst of it all, Middlesbrough are going to the UEFA Cup. So, you know, something came out of it. Yeah, and they actually had a very good side. The nucleus of this team were solid 
Premiership. Not not even mid-table, like pushing pushing up into that top six place uh, quite easily. Oh, they had some very good players. Um, thought their midfield was solid. You know, Zenden was a very good winger. Parler's experience, Bowtang's experience. I know they had Dereev in there. He got about well. They also had Mendiet at the time, although he wasn't playing today. Southgate and Akiog at the back were probably, you know, outside the top four. That's as good a partnership you'll find. And, um, you know, both of them on their day could have played for any of the big clubs. Was your lethal weapon reference Glover and Gibson? Yes. Uh, I feel I had a male Gibson and Donny Glover-like partnership. They never let each other down. You know, they had been at Aston Villa together for years as well. They'd played for England together. And now they're at Middlesbrough together. You know, I watched the highlights back of this one and uh, the clip I watched was actually a Middlesbrough fans forum when Mark Schwartz received the penalty. The, the Middlesbrough fan just went, get in, get in, you big Aussie. <laughs> Schwartz a top keeper. A very good pundit now, Dan, but a top keeper. Oh, top keeper. Oh, yeah, big time. Again, I'm not, geez, you know, very good Middlesbrough team, but he was linked with the big guns down the years, you know, when they were replacing their old number ones. I think he would have been a good a good buy at one point for Arsenal or Manchester United or Liverpool. You know, they all had goalkeeping issues in the early noughties. So, Noah Schwartz was a brilliant keeper, a highly experienced international, pretty charming around the penalty area. My madman of the week is El Hajj Juf. Listeners are probably effing jeffing at the sound of his name. A man referred to as a sewer rat by fellow madman Neil Warnock. I'll touch on that shortly. Juf's professional career has at times been overshadowed by controversy. Spitting, assault, death threats, car park rave and politics. No, this is not the plot for Dolph Lundgren and Stallone in Rocky Eight. This is some of the mad antics Juf got up to during his career. A madman, a scummy man, and a man of the match at the World Cup in 2002, as him and sexy Senegal stunned champions France on the opening game. This got Juf a £10 million transfer to Liverpool. But before his time at Anfield, as a young chap in France, he crashed a car and was done and convicted for numerous driving offences. Taking into account his age, he was found for driving without a licence and sentenced to community service by the French courts. What community service is in France? We will have to ask our good friend, Eric. Several times during Juve's career, he was accused of spitting at fans and opposition players. No need for that at all. In 2002, he was accused of spitting at West Ham fans while warming up as a sub for Liverpool during a game at Anfield. An investigation by the police found no evidence that an offence had been committed, but that Juve had spat on the ground. He was involved in an incident when he spat at Celtic fans. This time, Juve was caught with a dry mouth and badly parched as he had disgustingly spat on live TV. Liverpool fined him two weeks' wages. UEFA gave him a two-match ban and Juve was charged with assault. Although Juve initially pleaded not guilty, he later changed his plea to guilty. While his time at Liverpool, he had a car park rave. It's safe to say Jimmy Carragher isn't a fan of Juve, Writing in his autobiography, he had never met a player who seemed to care less about winning or losing. Carragher mentions a time when Michael Owen had missed a penalty at Fratton Park and was a broken man at the Melwood training ground the following day. Meanwhile, Juve 
rocked up with music blaring out of his car and danced across the car park into the building. You'd think he'd won the cup the way he carried on. His attitude disgusted me. Jamie Carragher later said on, he is one of the worst strike rates of any forward in Liverpool history. He's only number nine ever to go through a whole season without scoring. In fact, he's probably the only number nine at any club to do that. He was always the last one to get picked in training. Despite being just 20, a young Neil Mellor was told by Gerard Houllier that he was the designated penalty taker on his Liverpool debut against Ipswich Town in the League Cup. Liverpool were awarded the penalty that night. Mellor was set to take it and cap a dream debut off. But no! Juice snapped the ball off him and took the pain. What a memory thief you are, young Juice. Carragher also said he feared no one. It was like he was at home. He did not respect the rules. You had to speak English and he spoke French. He kept it up all the time. Players in training used to underhit passes to Juf, so this would make fellow players tackle him. In November in 2004, while on loan to Big Sam's Bolton, Juf was charged by the police for spitting at an 11-year-old Middlesbrough fan during a 1-1 draw. Now, I don't like Borough as a club, mainly because of Southgate's pointy nose, but no need for this, Juf. Then, a few weeks after that, you'd think Juf would have learned his lesson. But no! Dirty Juf spat in the face of Pompey player Dezeu. Bolton fined him two weeks' wages and the FA banned him for three games. Bolton manager Big Sam later revealed that he considered sending Juf to a sports psychologist. In September 2009, Juf was questioned by police after allegations that he had made a racial slur to a ball boy during a match at Everton. Juf defended his actions by saying that the ball boy had thrown the ball to him like a bone to a dog. Come on, Juf. And then in January 2011, following Blackburn's 1-0 win over QPR in the FA Cup, QPR manager Neil Warren accused Juf of taunting Jamie Mackey whilst Mackie lay on the pitch injured with a broken leg. This led to the spat, no pun, intended between Warnock and Juf, with Warnock saying, there was no need to put the finger up and call him a disgrace. And even the Blackburn people were embarrassed. I can't abide people like that. I don't know why he wants to take on the world every week. For many years, I thought he, Juf, was a gutter type. I was going to call him a sewer rat, but that might be insulting sewer rats. I think he's the lowest of the low, and I can't see him being at Blackburn much longer. I think he will be the first to go, and good riddance. I hope he goes abroad because I won't miss watching him. He's a nasty little person. Juf replied, who's Warnock? He's nothing to me. He's not Alex Ferguson. He's not Arsene Wenger. He's not Sam Allardyce or an important manager. I know he doesn't like me, but it's the same for me too. I don't like him. The irony is, Juf would go on to play under Warnock the next year at Leeds United. Juf was shown a controversial red card while at Adam Road after making offensive gestures towards the Brighton away fans. Word has it, he made seagull puppets and taunted the fans. Leave the seagulls to our friend Eric. Juf was arrested following reports of a nightclub brawl in Manchester. One man was seriously injured and Juf was bailed for a week. Who the hell paid for his bail? That's what I'd like to know. Juf then had a spell at Rangers. Juf was one of three Rangers players sent off in the Scottish Cup fifth round replay after an altercation on the touchline with Neil, how's your postman Lennon, and his descent to the referee at full time. Juf was fined five grand and warned over his future conduct by the SFA. A bit late for that. In 2011, Juf was banned for five years 
from playing for the Senegal national side after reacting angrily to claims that he had failed to attend a disciplinary hearing. Juf proclaimed that he felt he was banned and left out of the squads because the Senegal Federation were scared of him. Yes, scared of you spitting on them. Life after football for Juf, a career in politics. He said, I've taken the decision to do politics as I want to be the soldier of the youngsters. A man who pushed a ball boy, a man who spat. Good one, Juf. Just as Juf was trying to clean up his act, he was locked up after threatening to kill the brother of the president of the Economic, Social and Environmental Council over the phone. He is alleged to have said, I'm going to kidnap you. My guys are going to beat you up. It wasn't all bad for Juf. He did manage to win the League Cup of Liverpool in 2003, the Scottish Premier League title in 2011, and he twice won African Player of the Year in 2001 and 2002 and made the FIFA World Cup All-Star team in 2002. Now, this is a madman, but also a scummy man in my eyes. My madman of the week is El Hajj Juf. It's now time for our Euro Match of the Week, a brilliant match between Barcelona and Villarreal. Stephen, what did you make of this one? Hola, amigo. Well, I watched this one last night, Dan, while munching some paella. Washed it down with a wee sangria. And I've continued the Spanish trend today with a café con leche and some churros. Match day 37 in La Liga saw newly crowned champions FC Barcelona take on Villarreal in an end-of-season goal blitz. 84,537 fans were treated at the Camp Nou as Barcelona capped off an historic season. They had won their first La Liga title in six years. In fact, it was their first trophy at all since 98-99. A superb achievement, considering Frank Rijkaard's rebuild in the summer of 04. Mark Overmars and Luis Enrique retired. Edgar Davids went back to the old lady. And first-team regulars Patrick Clivert and Philip Cocu were given the boot. So, Barcelona lined up for this one in a familiar 4-3-3. With Yaquera in goal, a back four of Belletti, Oliguer, Puyol and Silvino. A midfield three of Xavi, Lucha Libre, Rafael Marquez and Deco. And a three-pronged attack of Julie, top scorer Samuel Atu, and 2005 World Player of the Year, Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho, whose real name is actually Ronaldo and was given the nickname Ronaldinho after bagging 23 goals in a youth game which led spectators to draw comparisons with podcast regular R9 or R10, depending on what year we're covering. Ronaldinho simply translates as Little Ronaldo. The engineer Manuel Pellegrini's Villarreal started in a 4-4-1-1 with Pepe, I've still got hair, Reina in goal, Venta at right back, Gonzalo Alvarez and Aru Barena making up the rest of the back four. The midfield was Jose, size 12 font on the right, Senna and Josico in the middle and Soren on the left. Jose Marie was in the hole behind Diego. Oh, whoa, Forlan. Barcelona were given a guard of honour onto the pitch by a respectful Villarreal side and the trophy presentation happened before the game. Ronaldinho asked for it to be moved to before so he could get out and party on Las Ramblas as quickly as possible. It didn't take long for the goals to start flowing in this one. Size 12 font picked up the ball in the Barca box and cushioned a lovely pass out to the edge of the area that was crying out to be hit. 
up stepped Diego Forlan on the left-hand side of the area and he wrapped his right boot around it and the ball flew into the keeper's top left corner. An unbelievable strike. Barcelona then huffed and puffed in the Catalonian rain, searching for an equaliser. Ronaldinho broke free in the area but snatched his shot past the keeper's left-hand post. He then fell to the floor but still managed to raise his famous smile while breathing out of his ass possibly still hung over from the night before. Shortly after, Samuel Etu was brought down in the area. An obvious penalty kick that Etu took himself, but he smashed his effort against the underside of the bar, failing to add to his 25 league goals. On the 30th minute, Jose Marie broke away from Oliguera and the Barca centre-half took him down cynically in the area. Penalty! Villarreal! Diego Forlan stepped up and coolly sent the keeper the wrong way, tucking it away into the left-hand corner. Forlan had already made the scousers cry. Was he about to spoil Ronaldinho's party? Well, the Brazilian magician said, no way, hombre. Belletti fired in across from the right, and Ronaldinho rose highest to cushion a header back across Pepe Arena and into the net. 2-1. 2-1. Barca were level four minutes later when Deco curled in a free kick from the left corner right on top of Reina. Reina took a leaf out of fellow Liverpool keeper Calamity James's book and flapped at it like a salmon. The crafty winger Julie was there to pick up the scraps. 2-2 at half time. Just two minutes after the restart, Julie was at it again. This time, a ball from Ronaldinho fell kindly to Julie. And he hit a thunderous volley hard and low across Pepe. I've got slightly less hair than I had in the first half. Reina. It hit off the inside of the right post and nestled in the corner. A superb strike. And that was Ronaldinho's 17th assist of the season. 3-2 Barcelona. Just when it looked like Barca would take all three points, a mix-up between the two drunken sailors, Gabri and Oliguer, put it on a plate for Diego Forlan, who had the vision to see the keeper off his line and he chipped them from 25 yards. 3-3, and an unforgettable hat-trick at the Camp Nou for the little Uruguayan. On the 79th minute, Julie was taken off, and on in his place came maverick and legend Henrik Larsson. Ronaldinho wasn't happy, as that was the third and final sub. He was hoping to swap his white night tiempos for his white dancing shoes and get out to the car park for a carry-out with the Barca fans. A brilliant game here full of Spanish flair and technical ability. This league title would be the start of the Barca dominance of Spanish and European football for years to come. This season also saw the debut of one Lionel Messi, but he wasn't included in the matchday squad. Instead, he played up front for Barcelona B the day before, notching a brace. So Barcelona won the league with 84 points and Villarreal can be proud of their efforts, finishing third and qualifying for Champions League football. It finished Barcelona 3, Villarreal 3. So Dan, this was the start of the Barca dominance, their first title in six years, and they played some unbelievable stuff. Oh, they absolutely did. They'd struggled for a few seasons, even finishing mid-table. Raycord comes in, he signed really, really well. Ronaldinho was was the linchpin in bringing everything back together for for Barcelona. Fully deserved the title in the 2004-2005 season. Xavi was really pushing on. Signed uh, Deco from current Champions of Europe, Porto, the summer previous. 
Ludovic Juillet from Monaco, who had a great campaign there. And Atu was a goal machine. So very, very exciting team. Fully deserved their title. Getting caught up now on the Deportivos, Valencias and Real Madrid's. You just talked about Samuel Atu here. Like, he was becoming a world-class striker. Oh, without a doubt. Um, he, he had banged them in for Mallorca. He'd been at Real Madrid before that, which, you know, people might forget as well was a really good bit of business. I think he fed off Ronaldinho really well. And I think a player like Ronaldinho always needs that that main point, that striker to hit, to link up with, to play the one-twos with. It really was the workhorse in there, you know, of the front three. And then had a really, really good base with uh, Puyol and Marquez uh, defensively. But uh, no, Atu was outstanding, truly world-class striker. Another unsung hero of this Barca side was young Xavi who was coming into his own here. A man who you bumped into a couple of years ago, Dan. Yes, he was at a he was at a seven-a-side competition that I was happened to be playing in at the time. And I couldn't believe how small he was, honestly. Small in height, small in build. And I was just looking at him and I was just thinking, one of the best midfielders we've ever seen. He has went toe-to-toe with uh, Vieira's, Gerard's, Lampard's. Skulls, even players before that, he would have played against Zidane, Kane, you know, all those guys as well. And, you know, always held his own. And I feel around this time, Rijkaard has made him the main midfielder for Barcelona. He's really helped by Daco and his creativity. And something very, very special is happening at Barcelona in regards to Xavi. He was a dream to watch. Was he a nice man? A very nice and friendly man, mate. Absolutely, yeah. He, 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 good time for everybody. Uh, was showing off some skills on the night of the competition down at uh, his club Al Sad's training ground. And uh, oh, people were just standing in admiration at him. He, he really was a, a good man, gave a lot of time to people. You know, in, in recent years, we would associate the great Spanish holding midfielder role with Sergio Busquets, but Marcus Senna was showing him how it was done here way before he came on the scene. Quality player, so underrated. A player I wouldn't have known much about at the time. I would have watched him the following year when Villarreal got to the semi-finals of the Champions League. They also had Raquelme at the time as well, who I know he wasn't playing on this night, but Senna was the, he was the water courier, the dog in the middle of the park, winning the ball back, giving it to Raquelme, giving it to Jose Marie and, and giving it to Diego Forlan. It's a solid Villarreal team, hey? It did not give much away and they scored goals and it's no surprise that they were up there with Real Madrid and Barcelona at the time. Matchman, um, I nearly didn't recognise him, but Pepe Reina was in goal here and he had hair. Yes, the two like two different men. He had some sort of uh, hair. Was it a wig? We do not know. He had hair in this, but I'll always remember him as a clubhead. Do you read him as a keeper? Yes, very good keeper. Probably very unlucky he didn't get as many caps for Spain because obviously Casillas was the main man. <laughs> yeah. So he looked back maybe at that, but a great keeper and great set of hands and feet. Bulls against the Bulls. This week's Balls Against the Wall quiz is sponsored by a bag of balls that Hori Houdini Redknapp stole from Portsmouth on his way to Southampton. These balls are still being used by Southampton to this day. Just the second Portsmouth fans. Oh, what a ball. Yes, welcome to the Balls Against the Wall quiz. The quiz where I pit Dan against Mush to see who has the best football knowledge. Dan stole another one last week, going up 5-2 now in the series. Can Mush 
pull it back again to make it 5-3 today, we will find out. This week, lads, the questions are all about the 04-05 season. And first of all, we need your player buzzers. Dan, this week, the player buzzers are managers of the 04-05 season. Who have you went with? Dowie! And Matchman, who have you went with? Martin Yole. Martin, the big Dutchman Yole. <laughs> so we're blessed as ever, lads, to have Ua Eric Cantona back to keep the scores for us. And here he is. How are things today, Eric? Well, Eric, how you doing? Um, what colour bin is it this week to leave out? I am Cantona. Ah, thank you for passing that on, Eric. Good, good stuff. The prize this week is a number two single for that week in May 2005, and it's Feel Good Inc. by Gorillaz when Damon Albarn was battered by Oasis and had to start another band. Lads, you will know when the quiz is over when you hear this noise. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Question one. Which sports brand made Crystal Palace's kits? Martignol. Yes, Mosh. Theodora. Correct. Which insurance company sponsored the Crystal Palace kit? Martignol. Yes, Mosh. Churchill. Correct. Crystal Palace, Chelsea, and which other London club beginning with C competed in the league? Dowie. Yes, Dan. Jordan Athletic. Correct. Which sport brand made trainers for Burton's and also Blackburn's kit? Dowie. Dan. Lonsdale. Correct. <laughs> Who was Bolton's captain? Dowie. Yes, Dan. Kevin Nolan. Incorrect. Ooh. Mosh. JJ Akotcha. Correct. Oh, good shout. Who resigned as Manchester City manager in March 05? Dowie. Yes, Dan. Kevin Keegan. It is Kevin Keegan. I would love it if he resigned. Who won PFA Young Player of the Year? Martin Yule. Yes, Mush. Wayne Rooney. Correct. Who was picked to partner Thierry Henry in the PFA Team of the Year? Martin Yule. Dan. Wayne Rooney. Incorrect. Oh. Mush. Andy Johnson. Andy Johnson is correct. Max Browning? Yes, he banged in a lot of goals that season. Who won the Golden Glove? Martin Yule. Yes, Mush. Check. Peter Check did with 25 clean sheets. Which 42-year-old Nigerian striker notched 13 goals for Portsmouth? Yes, Dan. Yakubu. He did. Who finished fourth in the table? Martin Yule. Yes, Dan. Everton. They did. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Oh, that was close. That was really close, Dan. Picking up a few points there at the end. Eric, what were the scores? Daniel. Sank. Conier. Cease. Oh, oh Mush has won at 6 5 on aggregate. And he go. he pulls it back again to 5 3. He just will not let go. He will not let go. I'm a hungry little fighter. I'm fighting for a sandwich. He has not thrown in the towel just yet. So it's 5-3 in the series. And the gorillas are making their way to you. Dan, would you trade in for your Mick Huckman's greatest hits? Not a mission, Mush. You're going to have to throw in men in black as well for me to even consider it. Oh, all right. Okay. We'll talk after the show. This week's Maverick of the Week for the 2004-2005 season 
is the one and only Robbie Keane. Robbie's fantastic career got off to a flyer at Wolverhampton Wanderers where he notched two on his debut as a 17-year-old against Norwich City. A few weeks into the 1999-2000 season, Robbie signed for Wee Gordon's Dragons Coventry City and played a key role for Coventry that, that year, scoring 12 goals and linking up very well with Coventry stalwarts Scotty McAllister, Moroccan duo Chippo and Haji, and forming a great strike partnership with Cedric Roussel and constantly being supplied by the magnificent Paul Telfer. The mighty Inter Milan of all clubs came calling the following summer and Robbie hooked it to Italy for £13 million. Robbie started well, scoring in the Supercoppa against Lazio and was highly rated by then-manager Marcello Lippi. But sadly, Lippi and Inter Milan would soon part ways and young Robbie was deemed surplus to requirements by Marco Tardelli who let Robbie join Leeds United on loan. No doubt David O'Leary was rubbing his hands at the thought of getting another striker and quickly snapped up Robbie in this loan deal. And he would make this deal permanent after impressing with nine goals in just 14 games. David O'Leary and Leeds paid £12 for the Irishman the following summer to make the deal permanent. Again, things just didn't seem to click for Keno, who wasn't guaranteed a starting place. Such was the competition at Leeds United at the time with Mark Viduca, Alan Smith and even signing Robbie Fowler from Liverpool. And he would add himself to the Leeds exodus in the summer of 2002, when previous life Glenn Hoddle came calling. Robbie really settled at Tottenham under Glenn Hoddle and formed brilliant strike partnerships throughout his initial six-year spell with the club, linking up with Teddy Sheringham, Jermaine Defoe, Freddie Canute, Maido, Doran Bent, but most of all, the Bulgarian wizard Dimitar Berbatov. Both men catching the eye with fabulous goals and assists. And it wouldn't be too long before two of England's biggest clubs came knocking for the pair, with Dimitar Berbatov joining Manchester United and Robbie Keane getting his dream move to Liverpool for £20 million in the summer of 2008. Robbie was delighted to sign for Liverpool and helped them continue the push for the big prizes of the European Cup and Premier League under Rafa Benitez. However, all didn't seem well in the relationship with Keane often being played out of position on the right wing or sitting on the bench. And rumours of him not being fancied by Benitez in the first place seemed to come true in the January of this season when he was sold back to Tottenham Hotspur for £12 with Liverpool taking an £8 loss on the Irishman. Strange business all round, and to this day, I'm scratching my head at how Rafa wasn't able to feature Robbie Moore, particularly as Liverpool were strong challengers for the Premier League title at the time. Robbie's second spell at Tottenham would be mixed as he would get off to a flyer under Harry Redknapp and be made club captain. However, a fallout after Robbie going behind Harry's back and arranging a secret Christmas party for the Tottenham squad would result in Robbie being loaned out to Celtic for the remainder of that season. And then later on, he would be loaned out to Aston Villa. Robbie would fail to find his place back in the Tottenham lineup and squad and he would make the unbelievable move to link up with David Beckham and have a great spell with the LA Galaxy in the MLS, winning three leagues. Robbie would then make the mad move to India, where he would have a spell with ATK in the Indian Super League, who were managed then by former teammate Teddy Sheringham. Robbie retired from his club career then in November 2018, and he would play in a number of exhibition, charity games, testimonials, anywhere he can get a game of football. Robbie is there, and he's often on the score sheet even to this day. It is safe to say that Robbie Keane is an Irish hero and it all began for him with winning the under-16 and under-18 European Championships for Ireland. Robbie scored three goals for Ireland at the 2002 World Cup. Who can forget 
his late equaliser against the Germans, leaving Oliver Kian absolutely devastated. He also represented Ireland in Euro 2012 and 2016, just missing out on France 98, Euro 2000 and South Africa 2010 in the playoffs. Oh, still fuming about Henri. He is Ireland's greatest goal scorer and one of the best players and captains any international country will ever have. And I feel personally that Robbie is very, very underrated and not spoken about enough, having had the career and goal tally that he has. His honours include... 737 career games, 325 career goals. For his country, 146 caps and 68 goals. A Nations Cup winner for Republic of Ireland in 2011. A League Cup winner with Tottenham Hotspur in 2008 and a famous win over Chelsea. He won three MLS titles in 2011, 2012 and 2014. And, and has won numerous Player of the Month club player of the years, and is an MLS All-Star and MVP. For me, Robbie is a true great of the Premier League, who is somehow underrated. He had a wonderful career. He is a legend of the game, and I would encourage all of our listeners to look back at his various goals and assists down the years. Fascinating career, played all over Europe and the world, and it's the type of career a lot of Mavericks should have. This week's Maverick is the wonderful Robbie Keane. It's match of the week. Bloody hell. Yes, welcome to match of the week. Mush the matchman is live from the Hawthorns. Will West Bromwich Albion beat the drop? It is impossible. They couldn't do it, could they? Mush the matchman, what just happened? Yes, Steve. West Bromwich Albion have done the unthinkable. No, not the Montreal screw job. They have stayed up thanks to goals by Jeff Shergar Horsfield and on loan little rascal Kieran Richardson. Robbo, you owe Fergie a bottle of plonk. I know you're a bag of tins, man, but you'll get a decent wine in any offie. Mike Snooker Q Riley's final tin whistle saw a nervous wait, but the news of the other results eventually reached the Hawthorns, and this was met by the Baggies fans' best moment of their life. Far more rewarding than the wedding day's birth of the children and that dream holiday in Butlins. West Bromwich Albion's odds pre-kickoff were as long as a three-legged horse at the Grand National as they were rock bottom of the table and needed Ian Dowie's Goonies, Crystal Palace, Nigel Worthington's Cups, Norwich City, and Harry's Heroes, Southampton, all to slip up for the baggies to bag themselves premiership status. I apologise to Portsmouth fans as I have hardly mentioned your side in this fixture. Yes, there was two teams involved and Pompey players arrived, but they were already safe and had visions of a sun lounger. Also, they would get one over on ex-manager Harry Redknapp, a man who traded his soul to manage their south coast enemy before Christmas. Well, Milan Mandarich got his belated Christmas present as Harry and the Saints both went down today. Now for the conclusion to the great escape. West Bromwich Albion made two changes from their draw last week at Old Trafford. Bleach blonde scooter, the producer Thomas Kuzak, comes in for injured Russell Holt. And Jeff Redrum Horsville takes a place in the stables for little rascal Kieran Richardson. Portsmouth kept the same back five that threw against Big Sam's Bolton last week. But it's going forward, they spicing things up like a Rogan Josh. Top goal scorer Benjamin Yakubu Button is given a rest, or is he away for an early bird special using his free bus pass as he is 67 now? In comes Ricardo Fuller, whose boots look like two bags of Skittles. The Baggies players and fans were pumped 
and they started the game as the same tempo Mr. Motivator would have been proud of. The first chance of the day fell to Robert Earnshaw after great pace by little rascal Richardson, who fizzed the ball into the box like a tin of Vinto. Earnshaw could only direct it wide. He was pleading for a penalty as he accused Stefanovic of pulling his jersey. Riff, Mike was the extension. Riley said no. Captain Campbell then was next to try break the deadlock. He was already throwing people around like he was in a Royal Rumble. He smashed a strike at goal. But Jamie Ashdown, filling in for red stripe, Shaka Hislop, made a great save. Mind you, his hands must have been stinging after that. Poppy then woke up. And from their catnap, Matty Taylor, who was a wand of the left peg, he whopped out the Gandalf and found Gary G.A.A. O'Neill unmarked at the back stick, but O'Neill volleyed wide. Ellen Perrin, a man who has won the Inter-Toto Cup, how many championship manager players can say that, will be thinking, I should have brought Benjamin Yukubu Button in the squad today. The half-finished goalless with the situation in the other games at the big break, meaning a goal would be enough to see West Brom snookering you, snookering you tonight. The baggies emerge for the second half with the theme tune to the great escape booming around the ground. I kid you not, while Brian Pint of Lager Robson took on the role of Steve McQueen and aimed to guide his troops to safety from relegation. But it was Portsmouth who had the first sniff of a chance in the second half. Hughes, no, not Mark or Aaron, men who would play until they were grey, but Richard, who's seen the presence of Kamara, no, not Chris the Pondit, but silky Senegal Kamara in the box, who outjumped the two Danish pastries, but he headed wide to the relief of Scooter, the producer, Kujak. Then, just before the arrow mark, Robbo cracked open a tin and rolled the dice at Mr. Burns's casino and told Jeff Tiger Roll Horsfield to take the Spruce Moose onto the field in replace of Champions League winner Greening. Well, Jeff Royal Ascot Horsfield was only on the pitch a matter of seconds when Horsfield popped up with a gold cup moment, volleying home with his first touch into the net. The Hawthorns has erupted. One nil the baggies. There is a lifeline. Brian, I drink you under the table. Robson's bold decision to play three up top has paid off already. Then silence at the Hawthorns as news had filtered through that Ian Dowie's crystal goonies had taken the lead at the valley. That didn't put the baggy players off as they then doubled the lead. That man, Jeff, final furlong Horsfield, held off a challenge and a cheeky backheel pass found little rascal Richardson in the box who fired past Ashdown on his banana skin coloured kit. 2-0 West Brom. Brian, 2-10 Tuesday, Robson didn't react. He's the coolest man in this ground in his lovely suit that he must have worn to the christening of Brucey's Cub Alex. Then one man and his pocket radio got the score update. Charlton had equalised against Crystal May's Palace. Dowie dejected as Jonathan Fortune had scored to sink the sloth Dowie. The full-time whistle was met by a cautious clap as every fan in the ground was wondering had they put enough antiperspirant on today as they were going to be in for some sweaty moments waiting on the score from the valley. The only fans who celebrated at Mike Did I Bring the Chalk from IQ Riley was Portsmouth. Even though their side were beat, they had got the news that Southampton were beaten at home, meaning they would drop down to the championship. Just as the baggies were begging for the full-time whistle, their prayers were answered. It had ended at the valley. Fans pulled out a classic pitch invasion. The stewards not bothered, left them onto the pitch, as them and the groundsmen probably should be annoyed by this. 
but they're not as they're baggy fans themselves and they're on the pitch too. Little rascal Richardson is on the shoulders of a fan. Jeff Horsfield will be given the keys to the town. Cement has been ordered as we speak from Irish company Quinn Cement to build a statue of Brian Robson outside the ground. He has done it. His side were bottom of Christmas, bottom before kickoff, and they have done the unthinkable and beaten the drop and achieved the great escape. As for me, I'm going to see if I can go for a pint with Robbo as I need to get away from Baggy's fan, Adrian Childs. It's finished here. West Bromwich Albion 2, Portsmouth nil. The great escape has been done. Back to you in the studio, Steve. Oh, it's an unbelievable finish at the Hawthorns. Must have match, man. What a game. I hope you had some antiperspirant on as well. I know you're a fan of Lynx Africa. I hope you pelted it on you this morning. Dan, what a match. West Brom have done the impossible. They started bottom. They survived. How did they do it? It's quite unbelievable, Steve, um, to be <laughs> going into the final day of the Premier League, bottom of the table and still having a fighting chance at survival is, you know, almost unheard of until this season. And somehow they've managed to win well, get the result they need and every other result goes West Brom's way, which, which is truly the biggest surprise of the day. And Brian Robson, a former West Brom hero, he's, he's done the business, the great escape. He somehow pulled a, an average group of players together to achieve the unthinkable. And um, the West Brom fans on the pitch at the end just sums the whole day up. Mass hysteria and celebration now for, for the baggies. Yeah, you said an average squad. They're looking through the starting 11. It looked like a Manchester United B team. Robbo obviously pulled in a few favours here. Uh, yeah, well, I think Kieran Richardson alone was a real shrewd bit of, of business from him. And he needed an attacking player. I think that West Brom team, if you take Richardson out of it, didn't have much pace. You know, he played with target men as well up front. Although Earnshaw was a good poacher, a bit of pace too. Um, but just that extra help in terms of when you retrieve the ball, just for those breakaways. Goalkeeper Russell Holt getting injured was probably a blessing. I think Thomas Kushak was a much better goalkeeper at this stage in their careers. He was up and coming goalkeeper. Uh, the dog deep, they had some some legends in there. Moore and, and Horsfield, who had been a decent Premier League striker. And he was called upon on the day as well. West Brom just did what they had to do. I think Crystal Palace were probably very unlucky. Norwich, you know, they absolutely collapsed. And um, Southampton had the biggest test on the day with uh, hosting Manchester United and uh, Pax St Murray's. Uh, sort of a very tense atmosphere in that game. And they just couldn't couldn't get the job done. United were preparing for a cup final. Fulham just in full flow, sending the Craven Cottage fans home happy. And maybe you got the 3-0 and Norris just said, ah, I've had enough of this. The whole story is about West Brom. To be 20th and survive is quite astonishing. With 34 points as well, which I think is the lowest tally ever, is it? Uh, yeah, a low tally. Now, you, you know, you can look at that different ways. Was it a tight league or was there... You know, five, six teams with a real lack of quality in the division in 2004-2005. I would prefer to say that I think just that the top six, seven teams took no prisoners that season and took a lot of points off the bottom teams. And then they kind of all beat each other down there as well over the course of the season. It's funny how history repeats itself. You know, we're sitting here 16 years later from this day and West Brom, Southampton and Crystal Palace are still fighting relegation. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. I, they're just those those clubs, you know, West Brom would yo-yo for many years. A little settled for a few seasons, but and big clubs they are, but they all have their cycle. And, and maybe we can look at this season. You know, Palace still aren't aren't completely safe in the Premiership this year, and uh, you know, West Brom still still down there, changing managers, you know, and changing their squad quite often. So. It's just so, so difficult to survive in the Premier League. Most of the matchman mentioned how cool Robbo was on the day. Mm. And then I read that he didn't want to know any of the scores and that's why he was so calm. What do you make of Robbo as a manager? Obviously, one of the best English midfielders ever. Did he cut the mustard as a manager? He was a, he was a very good manager. You know, he's kept West Brom up this year and he was excellent, excellent at Middlesbrough. You know, I know they got relegated in 97, but that was really strange circumstances. I'm sure we, we, we'll touch on that down the line. He brought them the cup finals. He got them uh, two promotions, kept them in the Premier League, made them a steady mid-table team. Wheels kind of came off then in the 2001 season um, where, you know, they brought in Venables to sort of give him a hand then. I think he made a couple of poor decisions in his managing career club ways. You know, just so keen to get back in the management. Um, Bradford didn't work out for him and, and, and Sheffield United didn't. But as well too, he was probably one of those managers who suffered for the influx of foreign managers coming into the British game. You know, clubs were just looking for all of a sudden that fashionable continental manager to come in and... Uh, and build a new type of club and new type of style. So he's much happier now uh, in his ambassadorial role playing fives, five-a-side legend games and uh, having a pub tour of the world. Hey, what a life. You know, over in Shanghai promoting beer uh, for, for former clubs that he played for and so on and hanging out with former teammates. And uh, as I say, you know, I, you would imagine these guys are financially secure as well. So a few trips abroad a, a year, play a bit of football, drink some beer uh, and have quality time with, with, his, uh, with his family. Legend. That is the life. The rest of the scores from the final day of the season. Birmingham City 2, Arsenal 1. Walter Pandiani and Emil Heskey were the goals for City, while Arsenal's goal was set up by Patrick Vaseline Chespiera and bagged in by Dennis Flying Burkamp. Bolton Wanderers 3, Everton 2. Bolton's goals were scored by Jardy, Davis and hip-hop Yanakopoulos. Bruno Ngotti was sent off for them, while Everton's goals were scored by Tim Cahill, Cahill and Lee, one half of Phil and Grant Cosley. Charlton Athletic 2, Crystal Palace 2. Hughes and Fortuny with Charlton's goals, while Palace's goals were scored by Doggy Friedman and Andrew Johnson. Fulham 6. Norwich City nil. Brian McBride with a brace. Papa Booba Jupp. Zach Knight. Steve Mabrank and Andrew Cole with the goals for Fulham. Liverpool 2. Aston Villa 1. Gibriel Cisse bagged a brace. And Gareth Barry was set up by Nobby Nut Solano. Newcastle 1. Chelsea 1. Ron Jeremy OG and Super Frank Lampard with Chelsea's goal. Southampton 1. Manchester United 2. Big John O'Shea with an OG. Well, Darren Fletcher and Ruth Van Nistroy got United's goals. And finally, Tottenham Hotspur nil, Blackburn Rovers nil. That concludes the scores for the final day of the season. Matchman, what do you think Delia Smith would have said to those Norwich City players at halftime in that Fulham game? The only thing she would have said to them was, Let's be having you! Manchester United trail here at St. Mary's. By God, I missed the Dell. O'Shea trotting up the pitch, trying to make up for his own goal. Plays a pass to Quinton Fortune. 
very fortunate to still be on the pitch after his lunge on Henri Kamara, a man who demanded Henrik Larsson's number seven squad number at Celtic. Back to O'Shea, a flexible player with a bendy cross. Fletcher with a header, goal! United equalised thanks to Darren Freedom Fletcher. He was unmarked by ex-red Danny Higginbottom. Well, he's been left on his bottom as Fergie's Cobb beautifully directs a header past Niemi. Harry is sweating. Now can his cub, Jamie, do something, please? It's Southampton 1, Manchester United 1. Big Brucey's bedtime bath. Nice and warm, full of suds. A scented candle, a rubber duck. In the bath, Brucey don't give a dreams of passes to be. Dreams of passes to be. Okay, Dan, I've got the story ready. Can you just check that Brucey's already in the bath? All right, Brucey, get into the bath here. You've got a big day ahead of you tomorrow. We have to get the train at six o'clock. Your special guest on Soccer AM tomorrow morning with Helen Chamberlain and Tim Lovejoy. And just your luck, Steve, as always. Your old Birmingham manager, Trevor Francis, is on the show as well. And the two of you are going to take part in a crossbar challenge. Okay, Brucey, this week's story is by Robbie Savage, your good friend and dancing partner. Money was the name of the game in the summer of 2004. Brucey decided to go for it. You're mentioned here. All the donkeys who did the donkey work, like me, were not good enough. Brucey tried to add quality. And he had to do that to move Birmingham to the next level. The players he brought in were fantastic. There was Jesper Gronkier, my old pal Emil Heskey, Muzzy, is it, and Mario Melchiot. Mario was a nice footballer, and Emil was sensational. Brucey had asked me about him. Muzzy was given a massive contract, but we never saw the best of him because of his injuries. Darren Anderton also arrived that season. We called him Shaggy, after the character in Scooby-Doo. He was a funny guy. We all went away for a weekend in Bournemouth once, and that's where Shaggy lived. We went to his house, complete with swimming pool, snooker room, the works. We drove down in a bus, and he apologised and said, I'm sorry, lads, but I've had to book you into a motel. You could have all stayed at mine, but two of you would have to share a room. There was about 40 of us. How many rooms are in his house? Then there was Dwight York. If you went out with him, you could see how famous he was. Everybody stopped and stared. In restaurants, in nightclubs, everywhere. By this time, I had a reputation for collecting bookings. But I had never been sent off in my career. It almost happened at home to Chelsea in the second game of the 04-05 season, which we lost 1-0. Barry Knight didn't see it. But I was charged by the FA, found guilty of elbowing Mattia Kesman and giving a three-match ban for violent conduct. Kesman came on, grabbed me, and I swung. He was so small that I caught him. I've never elbowed anyone in my life, but the FA didn't understand the circumstances. As far as they were concerned, I was Robbie Savage, the guy who pooed in the ref's changing room. I flicked the ball over Didier Drogba that day. I've never heard a man scream so much when he was tackled. He may be one of the best centre-forwards in the Premier League, but the noises he made were incredible. A month on, we were continuing to struggle for results, but I still had time to wind up yet another legend, Graham Souness. I know. <laughs> we were playing Newcastle, and I found out later that Dean Saunders, my old Wales teammate Dino, had told all the players, let Sav have it. He's not that good. 
pressurise him and he'll give you the ball. That was also the match when Craig Bellamy turned up with blonde streaks and new teeth. He smiled at me and I said, who's turned on the floodlights? I didn't realise he decided not to go for normal sized teeth. He wanted them three times bigger. They were massive. Anyway, back to the game. Brucey had turned down the Newcastle jog and I'd read that Sunis was fifth choice. We equalised late to draw the game 2-2 and they were fuming. So as I walked down the tunnel behind Sunes, I just couldn't resist it. I said, how could we not beat them? They're crap. Sunes stopped, turned round and said, ah, you a good player, are you? Yeah, I am. I'm better than you, Sunes. I started to walk a little quicker now, moved past him and sped up even more. You're better than me? How many trophies have you won, Savage? Well, at least I'd be first choice for a job I went for, not fifth, Graham. As he came after me, I put my hands over my ears, like I do, and shouted, fifth choice, fifth choice, and then I ran into the dressing room as fast as I could. It was total disrespect for a legend of a player. The funny thing is, when we went up to Newcastle, he gave me a big hug. He was a marvellous player, and it was just that emotions were running high. I was petrified, though. Brucey said to me afterwards, if he'd have got you, he would have killed you. That's one too many you've opened your mouth to, Savage. Behave yourself. Good night, Brucey. Sleep tight. And don't let Gary Pallister bite. So now it's the part of the pod where we pick another player in our Simpsons lookalike 11. The back four are looking a little bit sparse at the moment. We've only got Julian Dixon there, matchman. I'm hoping that you've got a defender for us this week. Who have you went for? Yes, Steve. So the team is certainly taking shape, but I feel it needs a senior figure at the back, someone to offer insight to the lads. And the man I'm thinking of is Liverpool, a match of the day legend, Alan Hansen, who, when he was in the match of the day studio in the 90s, wearing them lovely suits, looked a lot like Principal Seymour Skinner. Rumour has it, Hansen still lives at home with his mother. Hansen also was not a great cook and once ruined the steamed hams for Superintendent Lawrenson and had to run to Krusty Lineker Burger to fix the problem. And also, he's had a running rivalry with Des Lynham, much how Skinner does with Bart, and Lynham brought his dog into the match of the day studio and groundskeeper Strachan had to chase it out of the building. A cracking pick. Hansen, obviously, a centre-half for Liverpool in the 1991 season and then had his career struck down by injury. Dan, what do you make of Young Alan here in the back four. I like it. A, a cool hand at the back. He looks good in a kit. He looks good in a suit. He's organised. He's disciplined. And he'll certainly keep a tight eye on Kearney out there at left back. And I feel with the McBean behind him, we're making a good back four here. Definitely. Much is it true that uh, when Des Lynham retired, he left a cherry bomb in Alan Hans's cubicle and Hansen had to take a week off work with a sore bum? That is correct. So, Alan Hansen, otherwise known as Principal Seymour Skinner in the back four of our Simpsons 11. So, unfortunately, that's it for this week's pod, folks. But don't worry, we're back next week. And next week, we're jumping in the DeLorean, all three of us, and heading back to April 1996. Dan, what have we got in store? 
Oh, Stephen, we've got some great games. We've got a magnificent clash between Liverpool and Newcastle. So we've got Kevin Keegan and legendary players on show. A great week for us to cover. Really looking forward to delving into this season. It was full of great business, uh, heroes, mavericks, and a little bit of madness. Mosh, are you looking forward to 1996? Yes, I am looking forward to going back in time when big Kevin Keegan said, I would love it if we beat them. And he was wearing an oversized coat, which he had stolen from the club shop. Oh, sticky fingers, Keegan, will be touched on big style next week. So it's good night for me and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from Mush, the matchman. Say good night, Mush. Good night, Mush. Put some links after going. You're sweating after that West Brom game. See you next week.